I marvel, but yet am never surprised by the depths that we can and will go for those we love. The amount of things I would do for my wife or son are countless, and we explore that in all the stars in the sky. And so we begin. When my daughter Violet was born, I didn't have much to offer her. My wife and I both worked, but housing was expensive where we lived, and much of our income went towards renting our cramped two-bedroom apartment. Owning our home was still just a dream then. All of the baby clothes and other items we'd gotten to prepare for Violet's birth had been purchased secondhand, and I'd taken on a second job to make sure that we'd be able to afford formula and other necessities. The first time I held Violet, I looked down at that little wrinkled face, and I just knew that any of the struggles in the coming days would be worth it. She was perfect, and she deserved a perfect life. I looked over at my wife, Tara, and I smiled. Someday, I told her, I'm going to make sure this child has all the stars in the sky. When Violet was five, she caught chicken pox from another child at her preschool. Because of this, she was required to stay home for two weeks while the infection ran its course. This was extremely hard on her. She was a very social child, and being apart from her friends for that long began to take its toll. In an effort to raise her spirits, I stopped by a thrift store on the way home from work and purchased a telescope that I had seen a few days earlier, and I set it up in her bedroom window and turned off the lights. She stared up in the clear night for hours, fascinated by the heavens and the things that filled it. When she finally went to bed, she snuggled into her pillow and asked me if someday she could go into space. I'm sure you will, I said to her. You'll fly, you'll fly right up to space and become the princess of all the stars in the sky. Two years later, when Violet was laying in bed in a pediatric cancer ward, I would visit her each evening after work and all day on the weekends, and I would have spent every single moment with her if it had all been possible, but I had to remain employed to be able to continue to afford our health insurance. Tara never left her side, though, so I was comforted that she was never alone. The cancer was aggressive, and while the doctors tried everything they could, the disease continued to progress towards the inevitable conclusion. There is no preparing for the death of a child. My wife and I did our best to brace ourselves for what we knew was coming, but with each passing day, we started to break down more and more. There were no more words of encouragement between us, no more promises that things were going to take a turn for the better. There was only silence as we sat next to Violet's bed, each of us holding one of her small hands as we watched the heart rate monitor. One day, the most terrible day I'd ever known, the lead doctor assigned to Violet's case told us she had less than 24 hours. Something broke inside of me as he spoke, something that had been cracking apart the entire time she'd been in the hospital. Knowing that I couldn't go back into her room while I was in such a state, I went to the restroom at the far end of the ward hallway and locked myself inside one of the stalls. The pain and frustration and fear and a thousand other emotions crashed down on me like a tidal wave, and I wept so hard that I was left gasping for air. After I finally got control of myself, I took several deep breaths before cleaning myself up with toilet paper. I left the stall and splashed cold water on my face at the sink. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror as I did so, and the face that stared back at me looked old and tired and almost unrecognizable. And then a voice called my name from the bathroom entrance, and I turned to find a well-groomed man dressed in a suit and a tie standing there, a briefcase clutched in both hands. He was older than I was, although it was difficult to determine exactly how much older. He introduced himself as Silas Pembroke. He said that he represented a private scientist that had been working on radical treatments for terminal illnesses. His employer had heard of Violet's condition. He believed that she was a perfect candidate for his program. The cost for the treatment would be high, Pembroke warned me, but if Violet were to receive it, he, I couldn't speak of it to anyone except my wife. It was cutting edge, but also not approved by the government. 
Tell me, Pembroke said as he raised a left eyebrow, what would you give for your daughter to live? Anything. Anything, I replied almost immediately. I'd give all the stars in the sky. This seemed to satisfy him. And he told me that the scientist's assistant would be in touch shortly and he left the restroom. I didn't know exactly what I'd agreed to, but it really didn't matter. All that mattered is there was one last chance for my daughter. There was no price too high for that. I told Tara about my encounter with the odd man, and while she agreed that I had done the right thing, she seemed doubtful that anything would come from it. Normally I would have shared that sentiment, but there was something about Pembroke that made me believe that what he offered was legitimate. I knew that there was a very real possibility that only I believed because I wanted it to be true, but all false hope. It was better than no hope at all. An hour after the sun had set, a different man entered Violet's room. He was wearing a white lab coat, and he had a clipboard tucked under one arm. Despite how he was dressed, however, I couldn't tell immediately that he wasn't a doctor. He greeted Tara and me with a smile and told me his name was Peter Lewis, and he was assistant to the person that would be performing Violet's procedure. He told us the scientist wished for his name to remain anonymous, and that one of the conditions of the procedure would be that we would not be allowed to be present for it. Neither would the hospital staff, and that he'd already cleared it with them. He didn't come right out and say it, but I had the impression that some strings had been pulled and staff agreeing hadn't been voluntary. The subject then turned to payment. Lewis informed us that, while no monetary compensation was required, one or both of us would be asked to perform a number of tasks to assist with the scientist's research. Those tasks would be assigned whenever they were needed. When asked what would happen if we weren't able to do what was asked of us, he bluntly informed me that what what was being done to help Violet could easily be reversed. Although we weren't comfortable with the deal, we made it anyway. What other choice did we have? Lewis ushered us both into the, out of the room and toward a waiting area. And as he did so, the overhead lights in the hallway began to turn off one by one. And at first, I thought there was a power outage, but after a moment, I realized that was backup security lights weren't coming on. All the lights being shut off deliberately, deliberately and I asked Lewis to explain what was going on. It's necessary, Lewis said. He smiled a strange smile and his eyes grew distant like he was recalling a long-forgotten memory. Monsieur Ganglier marche de las Colliers. I didn't recognize the language that it was spoken in. But before I could ask, he instructed us to sit in the waiting room, and he would let us know when the procedure was over. Again, not having much of a choice, we did as we were told. The last of the lights on the floors went out, and only illumination was the dim glow of the computer monitors and various pieces of equipment in the hallway. Lewis was gone. I glanced up and noticed the red light on the nearby security camera was off. I forced myself to look away, and Tara and I had made our decision. And we're just going to have to stand by no matter what happened. A door somewhere down the hallway from us slammed shut. Moments later, I heard the sounds of footsteps approaching, and Lewis appeared in the waiting room doorway. Your assistance is required earlier than expected, he said, handing me a slip of paper before going down the hall. Using the light from my cell phone, I examined the folded paper, and it was made of parchment. It was quite thicker than the standard piece of paper. Tara watched silently as I unfolded it, and the message inside was written in exquisite calligraphy. Please be so kind as to travel down to the morgue and retrieve the lungs of one Miss Caroline Tafford. I read the sentence over and over again while the message was simple enough to understand that my brain just couldn't seem to process what he was instructing me to do. Just the thought of it was enough to make my skin crawl and my blood run cold. It was Tara that brought things back into focus. She'd always been the practical one in our relationship, and practicality was on full display now. 
Rather than concentrating on the task detail of the note, she instead reminded me that a mere hours earlier, we agreed to do whatever was required of us to give Violet one last chance to be able to grow up. And unless we're willing to let her go, to let her baby girl die, we needed to stick to that agreement. She took a deep breath before volunteering to be the one to do it. I couldn't let her. Despite my own misgivings, I was not about to allow her to take the risk. What the note was asking was disgusting, yes, but it was also highly illegal. If she got caught trying to steal body parts from a corpse, she'd go to jail. It was better if I was the one to do it. She tried to argue, saying that we were in our marriage together and Violet was our child. If anything, it'd be safer for us to do it together. We could watch out for each other. And I just shook my head and pointed out that if we got in trouble, there'd be no one there for Violet if she survived the procedure. She had no one to answer. She had no answer to that, and eventually she had to give in. Deciding that I needed to get going before I talked myself out of what needed to be done, I left the, wait, I left the waiting room and went into the dark hallway. As I was crossing over the door and leading to the stairwell, I caught a glimpse of movement out of the corner of my eye. It was gone by the time I turned towards it. I frowned. Deep shadows made it difficult to be sure, but I could have sworn I'd seen a thin and tall figure, so tall that it almost touched the ceiling. Nothing else happened while I watched, however, so I dismissed it as my eyes playing tricks on me. I went to the stairwell and started descending the stairs towards the ground level. There was a map at the hospital and the main desk of the lobby, and I hoped that it showed where the morgue was. That was the extent of the plan I'd formed. I had no idea what I was doing. It turned out that I didn't need to go even into the lobby. When I reached the ground floor, there was a door listing attached to the wall next to the door, and the morgue was listed as being located on the first sub-level. I continued down the stairs to my destination. The hallway was quiet when I exited the stairwell. I stood still for a long time, straining my ears in an effort to determine if anyone was nearby. There was only silence, and it seemed strange that there wasn't anyone around, and then I remembered what time it was. Most of the staff had left for the day, leaving just the people assigned for the night shift. The first door I passed had a sign that said it was a locker room, and the beginnings of an idea began to form in my mind. I opened the door slightly and peered in. It looked empty, and with one last glance over my shoulder, I went inside. I went over the bank of lockers and started trying to open them one by one. Most of them were locked, and the few that weren't didn't give anything inside. There was a second group of phone in the other room, and it hurried and tried those as well, and almost out of lockers when I found what I was looking for. One that opened and contained a set of scrubs. I quickly changed into them, putting my own clothes into the locker, and they were large on me, but not so much that someone immediately noticed, and I closed the locker door and made sure that the lock didn't engage. Leaving the locker room, I continued down in the hallway until I reached a supply closet. I opened it and rummaged around until I produced a mask, a surgeon cap, gloves, and shoe coverings, and I put them all on and shut the closet door. As I did so, I saw a security camera at the end of the hall and froze. Even if I didn't run into anyone during the task that had been given to me, there would be footage of me in the sublevel halls. There was no way I'd be able to get away with this, and I felt panic beginning to rise in me. That panic subsided slightly when I noticed the light on the security camera was off, just like the one back up on the third floor had been, and I frowned and looked around me. There was another camera above me to my left, and it was shut off as well. No chance that this was just a coincidence. Still, there wasn't time to think about it. I walked down the hall and followed a series of signs towards the hospital morgue. I didn't pass anyone, and I started to feel a bit more confident that I'd be able to do what needed to be done without getting caught. I eventually reached the door and I was looking for, and a quick check made sure that there was no one inside. I entered and slowly closed the door behind me. The room was larger than I was thinking it would be, a line of four gurneys neatly arranged in the center of a gray-tiled floor, and a series of silver sinks were attached to the walls at the right. And those were large boxes that glowed white. 
Three metal tables were bolted to the ground, and various pieces of equipment were attached to these tables, and the lights hooked to the movable arms hung from the ceiling above them. A tray with a small medical instrument was positioned next to each one. It was the wall on the far side of the room that held my attention, however. Square cabinets stacked three and ten across were inserted into a wall. These doors were all closed. Each of them was numbered, and there were identification tags posted on a number of them. I see enough medical dramas on television to know this is where the dead bodies were stored. I looked back at the door that I had entered through. This was likely my last chance to get to turn back, and I returned my attention to the cabinets and set my jaw. That wasn't an option. Violet deserved her chance to live. And I crossed over to the drawers and took the note out of my pocket to verify the name of the person I was looking for. Caroline Tafford. I slowly examined each of the identification tags in turn, making my way down the walls I searched for the correct one. And when I reached the end, though, I still hadn't found it. I went through tags two more times to be sure, and there wasn't anyone in either the first or last name of the body I needed to find. Can I help you? A voice said from behind me. I had been so engrossed in my search that I hadn't heard the door open, reminding myself that my face was hidden behind a mask. I turned around the speaker. A woman in her early to mid-twenties was standing in the doorway. She was dressed in the same type of blue scrubs that I was, but she was wearing a lab coat over them. Her blonde hair was tied in a ponytail, and she was regarding with a curious expression on her face. Thinking fast, I told her that I'd been sent down to retrieve a blood sample from one of the bodies in storage. I was surprised myself by how easy the lie came to be, even though I was more surprised that the woman smiled and nodded. Let me give you a hand, she said as she walked over to me. Dr. Gooding's filing and cataloging system can be a bit of a nightmare. Who are you looking for? I answered her with a name that had been seen on one of the identification tags, and as I did so, my eyes were drawn to the name tag that was pinned to the front pocket of her lab coat. I had to restrain myself from reacting. Written in blue letters was the name Carly Tafford. I hadn't been set to retrieve the organs of a dead person. I was there to get the lungs of someone who was very much still alive. I knew immediately I couldn't do this. I was being asked to commit murder. That was going too far. I mentally began to work out how to get the more out of the morgue without raising any suspicions. A violet, an image of violet sleeping in her hospital bed with tubes sticking out of her came unbidden in my head. I bit my bottom lip as I watched the woman open one of the doors in the wall. One thought kept repeating myself over and over. Either she died or my little girl did. As she turned her back to me, I began to start to roll out the body in this metal tray. I reached over to one of the instrument tables and grabbed the scalpel. I quickly closed the distance between us, clamped my hand over her mouth, and pierced her neck with the blade. I pulled hard, and I slid it across her throat with surprising ease. She tried to struggle against me, but it was much too late. Blood poured out of that long incision. I closed my eyes and kept my arms wrapped around her until the last fight was gone. Her body leaned up against me, and I slowly lowered it into the floor. She looked at me in fear and confusion as the light faded from her eyes. I had done it. I had actually killed someone. I'd stared down at that woman's body for a long moment before rushing over to a sink, ripping off my mask and heaving up the contents of my stomach. I knew that I wasn't done. Killing her had only been the first step. I used the sprayer attached to the sink to wash my vomit down the drain, putting my mask back on. I went over to the body and somehow managed to hoist it up into the nearest table. It wasn't easy. She couldn't have weighed more than a hundred pounds, but trying to maneuver even that little dead weight was extremely difficult. The next hour was the worst of my life. I had no medical training, and I certainly didn't know anything about harvesting organs. And while the tools that were needed to remove the lungs were all there, I didn't know the proper way to use them. The result was a horrifically mutilated body. It made me sick to think about what I'd done to this poor woman that hadn't deserved this, this desecration. 
I kept expecting the morgue door to open as I worked, but it never did. Apparently the woman had been the only one assigned to that shift, or at least the only one actively working the section of the hospital. And that's how I forced myself to think of her. The woman. I couldn't afford to refer to her by name, not even in my own thoughts. That would only serve to remind me that she had been a living person, someone with feelings and desires and a family. It was better to dehumanize her in my mind. It was the only way that I had to manage to get through my grisly task. When I'd finally cut the lungs out of the woman's chest, I looked around the room for something to put them in. I spotted a portable cooler in one corner of the room and began to retrieve it. It was marked to use to carry organs for transplanting. It would have been funny if I hadn't been so shaken and disgusted by the horrible act I just performed. I placed the lungs inside and they were surprisingly heavy. There was no way to hide what I had done. Gore was everywhere. I just went over the door and in the last second stopped myself from opening just like the room, I was covered in blood. I went, and If I went into the hallway dressed in these clothes, I was going to leave a trail. So I stripped off the scrubs and balled them up with the mask, cap, and shoe coverings with the bundle under one arm and the cooler under the other and went into the hallway barely clothed and hurried back to the locker room. I quickly used one of the showers to rinse off my body before getting dressed. The entire process had only taken five minutes, but every second that passed was one moment closer to that when that woman's body would be discovered. I finished dressing and looked at the ball of clothing sitting in the floor in front of the locker. I didn't know what to do with it. When the police were inevitably called, they would go through a thorough search of the hospital, and that meant that just throwing the scrubs into the trash wouldn't work. And I couldn't think of anywhere to hide them when they wouldn't be, where they wouldn't be discovered, so the locker room door opened, and I felt my heart skip a beat. And to my surprise, the man from upstairs, Lewis, entered the room. He nodded once he looked me up and down. Are the items in the cooler? he asked. Yes, I told him, my voice sounding weak in my own ears. Good. You should head back upstairs with your wife and daughter. I'll take care of those. He motioned at the scrubs with his chin. Leave the cooler here, too. Violet, he smiled slightly. She's going to be just fine. The procedure is finished. And it was a complete success. As long as you keep up your end of the bargain, she'll live long and a happy life. And Violet did indeed make a full recovery. To this day, there has been no further sign of cancer. And if anything, she's healthier than she's been. Her doctors are at a loss to explain it, and the term miracle has been thrown around a lot, and Tara and I know better. It wasn't any divine intervention that saved her. It was a dark deal made with a dark devil. I was never so much as questioned about the death of Caroline Carly Tafford. And during the past two years, we've received three more of, her fi- of these finely written notes on parchment. Each of them has been hand-delivered to us by Pembroke, the man who had first approached me in the restroom. I don't know why for sure it's always him, but for what I have been able to piece together, I think he handles certain types of business for the anonymous scientist. And apparently that also includes messenger duty. Each of the tasks has been as bad as, if not worse, than the one I had to perform in the hospital. And despite Tara's objections, I have done them all by myself. I don't want her to have her hands dirty like mine are. I just love her too much for that. The worst part of the tasks, the part that really keeps me up at night, is that they're becoming easier. Not the acts themselves, but convincing myself to perform them. I'm becoming accustomed to the killing, and I'm not enjoying them. I'm not some kind of psychopath. It's just I don't have that voice in the back of my head acting as my conscience anymore. I've changed in some fundamental way that I just can't quite explain. And even if I did have any internal crisis about what I'm doing, I would just have to look at Violet going about her life to silence it and being able to watch her grow up instead of dying scared in that hospital bed makes it everything worth it. Some people may say that one child's life isn't worth the taking of many others. Those people have never faced the certainty of losing their child before. 
So no matter what Violet's mystery benefactor requests of me, I'll do it. I'll be the butcher that he requires me to be. And for my daughter, I'll keep killing until the bloodstains of all the stars in the sky. And so we end. What would you do for those that you love? I know that while I'd like to think about the greater good, even if it cured cancer, but it meant taking the life of my child, I'd let everyone else die of cancer and I wouldn't apologize for it. I think at the end, we all have our own selfish worlds that we live in and that people we care about and what we're willing to do to protect them. So what do you guys think? And as always, let me know and take care.